A little more than 10 years ago, I was at Woodland Mall in Grand Rapids with my son Calvin. He was maybe not quite three. And we had finished our food in the food court, and we were playing with Thomas the Tank Engine trains, which, full disclosure, we were both super into at the time. And he was doing this thing that I loved where he would make this funny sound that these troublesome trucks would make, and it would just crack me up. So he, he would make it, I would laugh, and that would make him laugh. We were laughing, we were having a good time. And I saw, out of the corner of my eye, this older guy get up from his table and start walking over toward us. And I confess, I thought, oh, come on. Because I had a wealth of experience that when people come over while you're enjoying time with your small child, it's for one of two things. One, to complain that you're being too loud and having too much fun, or two, to offer unsolicited parenting advice, which comes in two categories. One is, I see that you're in the moment enjoying every second of your child's sweetest years, and I just wanted to say, enjoy it, because it'll be over soon. I was, until you got here, downer. And the other is the really passive-aggressive, like, oh, you guys are having fun. Two rattles, huh? Yeah, that's great, although that means he'll never learn to read, uh, that kind of thing. But this guy, he got there, and he said, hey, I'm so sorry to bother you. I just wanted to tell you I loved watching you and your son interact. It really, really brought a smile to my face. And I wanted to tell you I'm a father, too. And he pulled out his wallet. And you remember these, these old-school, like, accordioning cellophane picture things? He was like, whoop, and it was like, and, and there were all these, and he said, these are my kids, and these are my grandkids, and, and, and he starts telling me about them. And he said, these kids are absolutely my world. But I wanted to tell you that uh, when I was, when they were about 11 or 12 years old, I read a book. And it was a wonderful book. And he told me the name of the book and the author, and I won't bore you with it. He said, have you read that book? I said, no, I've not even heard of it. He said, well, it, it was a short, easy read, and it revolutionized my parenting, my relationship with my kids. I wish I'd had it earlier. And I, I'm wondering if, if you'd be interested in reading it. I said, well, yeah, if you've got a copy. He said, well, you know... I usually walk around with copies to hand out. That's how important it is to me. But I'm all out. And I'm thinking, is this guy going to try and like sell me something or what's going on? Instead, he opens his wallet. He pulls all the accordion thing back up. And he pulls out a $10 bill. And he hands it to me. And he says, if you have this money, if I give it to you, would you keep your eyes open next time you're at Barnes & Noble or wherever and try to find that book so you can read it? I say, sure, yeah, thanks. And he said, all right, well, thank you. God bless you. Have a great day. Walked away. And as soon as he walked away, it occurred to me that I'd been braced for something very annoying. And there was nothing annoying about the interaction, nothing grating at all. And that vexed me. I was like, why not? Why, why was that okay? And then I thought, you know, maybe it was because he gave me money. Really, any, any interaction where someone at the end is like, here's 10 bucks. No, I mean, that, that's, that's a good one. And then I thought, no, that's not it. And I realized it was for a few reasons. One, it was because he was very straightforward. He wasn't passive-aggressive and coy about it and beating around the bush. Like, well, uh. no, he said, I think this might help you. Are you interested in it? Because I think it could be a good thing. Secondly, he was incredibly friendly. He wasn't grumpy about it. He wasn't superior about it. And thirdly, he was insanely competent, but not in his own abilities and wisdom and smarts, like he'd figured it all out, but rather in someone else's message that had helped him. And he was so confident that he didn't just say, you should do that, which anyone can do. It's very easy to just give advice and throw it out. But he put his money where his mouth was, even if it was just 10 bucks, was willing to say, here, I am so confident in this thing that I will go out of pocket so that you can benefit 
from it. And when I read this text, verses 19 and 20 especially, I think of that story. I think of that interaction. And I'll tell you what, I, I took the guy's money, I put it in my wallet. I never use cash. I'm a debit card guy, have been forever. And so that, the money sat there. And when I was at Barnes & Noble or Schuler's, I would look for it, never found it, finally bought it on Amazon and got the book. And I'm not going to tell you what I thought of it because that would undercut the whole thing here. But I got the book, and even after that, I felt weird spending that $10 bill on something else because in my mind it was locked in as this guy gave this to me for a, a reason, for a purpose. And as we've been looking at the armor of God, we've been looking at how God has prepared us to go out into the world and to stand and stand firm and withstand the attacks of the enemy as we bring the gospel forward. We've looked at all of the pieces of the armor, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, the belt of truth, the boots of the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And at the end of that, he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplications. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And I think that the, the last couple of verses there about praying for Paul often get sort of lumped in with the broader message about prayer. Like we say, let's talk about prayer. It's really important. And then way at the end we'll say, see, even Paul wanted prayer. So we should be praying. And I, I don't want to do that. I want to take a moment today, or, you know, a good pile of them, to talk about that concept. We'll talk about prayer in general next time. But before we get to prayer, I want to talk about how this idea of not having all the boldness he needs and reaching out for prayer to the saints blows my mind. It shocks me that, that this guy who, he, he was the greatest missionary, the boldest missionary. He'd stand before kings and emperors and high priests and just speak the gospel without ever backing down. And yet he's saying, could you pray that I'd have the boldness to do this? Could you pray that I'd have the words? Are you kidding me? When we don't have the words to proclaim the gospel, what do we do? We open the Bible, we find some of Paul's words, right? We say, let's go through the Romans road, or we'll look at Ephesians 2 or something. Well, what did Paul have to say on the subject? He's saying, pray that I would know what to say and when to say it, and I could say it boldly. Or in the NIV, it's fearlessly. And that word takes place twice. You find it twice in this passage. Fearlessly, which means on some level... When this guy, Paul, thought about proclaiming the gospel, he had something inside of him, something in his stomach that went, Ugh. there was a little shadow of fear hiding in there that he was praying would be overcome. There was a little lack of boldness that he was praying the Spirit would fill up and close the gap. And on one level, we might think this is incredibly discouraging to hear, right? If St. Paul, the great evangelist and missionary had to pray for, for help in doing this. What hope do I have? But I think, on the other hand, this is quite encouraging. It reminds us that people like Paul and Peter and Lydia and Priscilla and Aquila and James and John and all these heroes of the faith that we think of were not superheroes. They were ordinary people with ordinary infirmities and ordinary problems, and yet God did great work in them and through them. 
by his Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will do work through us as well, the same kind of work with the same kind of power. So if you're someone who, when you see a flyer for evangelism thing, you go, hey, I don't know if I even want to go to that. I think it might not be my thing. Because if I think about sharing the gospel, I get all rumbly in my stomach. I get nervous. I'm not overly bold or confident. I don't think I have the answers to everyone's questions. I, I have doubts of my own. Join the club. Welcome to the club. We meet in buildings with crosses on them on Sunday mornings. Like, we're all weak, doubting people, struggling, not perfectly bold and confident and sure-footed in our faith. And yet, we are God's plan A to bring the gospel to the world, and there's no plan B. Not only is the Apostle Paul the president of this club, he's also a member. Other distinguished alumni include Moses, who when told to be the mouthpiece for God, found himself saying, well, God, I don't know if I'm the man because, you know, I stutter, I, I'm not really eloquent in my speech, I don't, I don't have all the answers, I don't even know what your name is. What if they ask me what your name is? And he starts giving all these excuses, and God finally says, who made man's mouth? Wasn't it me? Go. They ask what my name is, tell them I am that I am. There's your answer. Go, I'll give you your, your brother Aaron. Here, you have the church, two by two. Go, go. He gives them basically the same answer that we are given as saints in the New Testament age. When we say, I'm, I'm not bold enough, I don't have the answers, I'm not ready, I'm not the one you want. And I think most of the problem is rooted in the fact that we have this idea, I don't know where it came from. Well, yes, I guess I do. The enemy, the world, the idea that we have to do all this stuff by our own strength, by our own wisdom, by our own cleverness by our, our own great intellect or something. That is worldly thinking. That is foolish thinking. Look at the disciples. After Jesus' uh, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, they find themselves, after preaching the gospel, grabbed by the Sanhedrin and brought in for questioning. Scary stuff. And these guys, who just a few weeks earlier were hunkered down, shh, in the dark, with the door locked in the upper room, going, what do we do? I hope they don't come back for us. Now they are pulled in before the same group of power brokers who put Jesus to death, who tried him, condemned him, brought him to Pilate, and handed him over to be crucified. And rather than backing down, they boldly, and Peter, Peter, who took a swing with a sword and ran off into the night, couldn't put two words together. Now he's speaking eloquently, a defense of the gospel and explaining why we have to obey God, not men. And he ends this big soliloquy with these words, There is salvation in none other, for there is no other name under heaven among men by whom we must be saved. And right after that, in Acts 4.13, we read, Now then they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They could tell by their speech, by their accent, by everything. These are ordinary guys. They're blue-collar guys. They're fishermen. They're not guys who should be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with us. And yet, when they saw the boldness, and, they, and they, they came face to face with it, they said, these guys have been with Jesus. We can tell, because Jesus was the same way. Carpenter seemed to be an ordinary guy, and yet when he spoke with boldness, people followed him because of what he was proclaiming. And when these guys, these these religious rulers recognized that they had been just owned in this interaction by these ordinary men, 
They said, I, I see the problem here. They've been with Jesus, and it's going to be a problem. And then what we see the disciples doing is they go out, they celebrate that they've been found worthy to suffer for the name, but they don't just go back to the upper room and high-five and, and talk about how cool it was that they, that they did it, that they were bold, that they were awesome. No, they go back and immediately begin to pray for boldness. These guys who had just boldly proclaimed the gospel now pray for boldness. Just like Paul, who is continually boldly proclaiming the gospel, asks the saints in Ephesus to pray that he will be given the words to boldly, in the opening of his mouth, make known the mystery of the gospel. Prayer for boldness, then, is required in bringing the gospel to anyone. And I've had people tell me, you know, I don't know, I've, I've tried telling people about Jesus, and I always get in my own way, I always get screwed up, and I say, okay, how long did you spend praying for boldness before you did it? Well, I don't know, I mean, I know my coworker, so I didn't know that I needed to. How many other people did you have praying that you would be given words in the opening of your mouth to boldly proclaim the gospel, and that it would find good soil? Well, I mean, not so many. Okay, I might have found the problem. Next time, give that a shot. We try to do these things by our own strength, and it simply doesn't work that way. The, the power in the gospel and the power in evangelism comes from outside of us, not inside of us. The, the power of the gospel is in our weakness, not in our strength. And for some reason, we've got to know our mind, and you can tell by the way the church acts when some celebrity comes to faith, that someone who has a lot of worldly clout would be the ultimate witness. Right? That somebody who's rich and famous and, you know, they got rings of gold and a silk suit. Or I don't know who I'm describing, but you know what I mean. Like somebody who's already got a huge platform. If, if they could get saved, then some great ministry could happen. That's the opposite of what we see in the New Testament. From, from Paul in chains to Jesus, who could call on 10,000 angels to come. Jesus, through whom all creation was made, pinned to a cross dying for our sins. The power of the gospel is in our weakness. And I'll tell you from experience, anytime I get cocky in thinking, wow, I'm pretty good at some of this stuff, that's when I find myself falling on my face and going back to God going, whoa, out of a puddle of my own you know, despair, I need your help. And he says, ah, there's the guy I can work with, work through. That passage that Christy read for us earlier, Jesus says, I will give you the words to say. That's more or less a description of what Paul is praying for here. In the opening of the mouth, yes, we think about how we could tell someone about Jesus. We think about how, with our wisdom, God-given wisdom, how we would approach it. We fill our minds and our hearts with God's word so that we are prepared. But ultimately, we trust that in opening our mouths, God will be at work through his spirit to make known the mystery of the gospel, as Paul says here. And remember this word mystery we've been seeing throughout the book of Ephesians, especially near the front. And now it's coming up again. And I think we've got a little pun here, a little dad joke action. In that mystery, musterion actually means the closing of the mouth. At least it comes from a root that means closing of the mouth. And you know, in the Old Testament, you've noticed that there's all sorts of these mysteries, unknown things, and they're sealed up, closed up, so that they won't be known. Right? You remember uh, in the, the book of Daniel, 
all of these prophecies that are made, and then oh, seal them up. Seal them up until the end. A sevenfold sealing of these things so that they will not be known. Even the name of God, its pronunciation, wasn't known among the people. Things were very mysterious. What's going on behind that curtain that's behind that curtain? And in there, we only have the slightest of ideas. In the New Testament, however, the opposite happens. I even told you earlier in the book of Ephesians that in the New Testament, the word mystery now means something that was formerly unknown that is now revealed in Christ Jesus. It has a whole new meaning for us. Because in the New Testament, what happens to those seals that were sealing up the visions? In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, oh, I can open that, and he breaks all seven seals and opens wide the scroll. Jesus, who came and said, I will reveal the Father to you. In fact, if you've seen me, you've seen him. The, I, the, he, Hebrews calls him the exact representation of the Father. So he came to reveal God to us. He came to, to tear that curtain of separation, not to decorate it and say, look how cool it is, how mysterious everything is. Ooh. And you and I are called to reveal God to a world that is perishing. That is our calling as believers. You and I are surrounded all the time by people for whom God is a total mystery. Shutting of the mouth, don't understand him. In fact, any ideas they have about who God is have come probably from television or from other people who have no idea what's going on, and they're confused, and they need you and me to then break open that seal with the authority of Christ and say, let's have a look. Now, there's another pun coming up. It's a double pun. What a beautiful passage this is, the majesty. Now, it's not certain, but, but I've read uh, John Stott and others suggest that there's another play on words here when he says, the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Now, Paul is in chains. Literally, it says in a chain. And that makes sense because there would have been one chain going through leg irons, through manacles, and then uh, into, anchored into the wall or the floor. That was a standard way that they would keep somebody uh, imprisoned. And so he says, I'm an ambassador in a chain. Now, we think of an ambassador, and we think of somebody who lives overseas in another country, works in an embassy, which is kind of a little mini version of our country over there, and, and works out relations between the two nations. But that's not what they would have thought of. An ambassador would be someone who would go on specific uh, kind of missions, diplomatic missions from one place to another, and wherever they went, there weren't, they didn't need to be in an embassy or something. Just wherever they went, they were essentially that king that they represented to whoever they were dealing with, with great, great authority to, to act and speak on behalf of that king. And where the pun comes in is that an ambassador would be given a chain, a gold chain to represent who they were, and that they did not stand there on their own authority. It was a reminder that their message wasn't their message. It was actually a message from the king. Their words had the weight of the great king and to remind people of the glory of the king that had sent them. And as an ambassador in chains, or in chain, Paul is saying, listen, even though the chain I have is made of iron and it's keeping me from leaving this house, it still is a reminder of the glory of my king by which I am speaking right now bringing a message that is powerful, and I pray that I would be able to speak it boldly and clearly because it is that powerful. And, and in this, I think we're reminded, first of all, that it is the norm that we would be in chains for the gospel. 
maybe not literal chains, but that we would suffer for the gospel, that it would make our lives not easier, but more difficult. In the moment, there would be what St. Paul later calls light and momentary troubles, which seem like major and never-ending troubles when we're experiencing them. And that the fact that we are not currently being persecuted for our faith here is not a right, but a fluke. And so when, when we see Christendom receding, as it has been for centuries now, and in our lifetimes, kind of some of the perks for the church fading away, and we get offended and go, hey, that's not right. Rather, we should be thinking, yeah, that's about right. That's what the, gospel, uh, the, the Gospels and the Epistles say would happen. And when we spend all of our time and energy trying to sort of restore Christendom and bring the, the message of Christianity back into its limelight and in position of prominence, it's a waste of time. And it, and it misunderstands our mission. Our mission is whatever diplomatic mission we're sent on, whatever trip we're sent on, we continue to be faithful as ambassadors. We continue to extend the interest of the king and the agenda of the king. We're not primarily thinking of, of PR, public relations, but rather of the will of our king. And we see that reflected in the fact that Paul doesn't even ask for them to pray that he'd be released from jail. He doesn't even mention it. He just says, well, I'm in jail. Pray that I would be opening my mouth boldly and that there would be a gospel preached and a great result. And so he understands as an ambassador that he is given, you know, like any ambassador, a, a per diem. The, the resources of the empire are at his disposal. And, and yes, he would use that per diem to put clothes on his back and food in his stomach and a roof over his head. But primarily, he's got to be using those resources for the good of the king, for the extending of the kingdom. And, and he's got to be the presence of that other king in this kingdom. And that is what we have as our mission as well. We are the presence of the heavenly kingdom here in this earthly kingdom that is perishing. We have to keep our eyes on that goal. As soon as we take them off, we find ourselves forgetting what our job was and saying, hmm, are these resources here to amuse me, to build me up? to make my agenda go forward, and, and we forget that everything we're given is for the glory of Jesus Christ. Keeping our eye on the goal is important. Not long ago, I was visiting my in-laws, our whole family was, and we were going to go to church on Sunday morning, Messiah Lutheran Church, where we were married, and where I went to preschool, fun fact. And uh, we, as we were about to go, my, my uh, father-in-law and I were talking about the length of sermons in different traditions. He's super glad he's Lutheran, by the way. And uh, I asked him, I said, at the back of your sanctuary, I can't remember, is there a clock? And he thought about it. He said, I, I don't think there is. And I, Now, I've preached in dozens of Baptist churches. I've probably been in hundreds. And usually, right back there where that exit sign is, there's a clock. And usually, it was donated by somebody. who's like, oh, I'll buy a real nice clock and put it up there so that the preacher, every time he looks up, oh, he's reminded what time it is. And when we got to the church, we both looked back to that spot. And instead of a clock, there was a cross. And I thought, oh, that'll preach. And yeah, for like 40 minutes, probably it'll preach. <laughs> instead of seeing and having his eyes on the time all the time, the preacher's eyes were on the cross. Now, I have a much bigger, much more beautiful cross to look at while I preach. Nice try, Lutherans. But the point remains, if we take our eyes off the cross 
And we focus instead as God is saying, here are resources that you can use to carry out the mission. And we say, well, instead of using this for a per diem to, to take care of myself and my family and our needs, and then we're going to say, how can we build up the kingdom of God? I'm going to focus my energy and attention on, on the clock or on the date book or the checkbook or the checklist or, or my own agenda and glory. We forget what Paul clearly has in mind, that he is a steward above all else. As an ambassador, he is a steward of someone else's resources. They belong to the king. And so he's to use them for the king's glory. And and when we remember that, we get that boldness, I think. Jesus, we're told, spoke not as the teachers of the law, but as one with authority. He spoke boldly, and it had a great effect. And when you and I speak boldly the gospel that's been given, we have the same authority at our fingertips that even Jesus did in his ministry. Because we are speaking for God as faithful ambassadors. The message we're given. What is that message? It's the gospel. That you were born in sin and that you continued to sin. But God because he loves you so much, didn't leave you in your sin. And didn't say, oh, forget him, forget her, that's a sinner. Instead, he said, I am going to send my son. God the Son came, Jesus Christ. He he lived a perfect life because we couldn't. He lived it on our behalf. He died a sinner's death, though he had no sins of his own. He became sin in God's eyes so that our debt was paid by his death. And then he rose again so that his righteousness could be our righteousness. Is that that hard of a message to proclaim? I don't think so. I think everyone here probably understood what I just said. We don't understand it exhaustively, but it's a message that children can and do understand and accept every day. It's the message that the apostles died for, that Tyndale was burned at the stake for, that that. Adoniram Judson went to the end of the earth and buried wives and children in the jungles because he wanted to bring that message to everyone on the planet. It's the message that John Bunyan was imprisoned for. And it's the message that you and I really want to tell someone about, but we go, eh, it might make it weird. And I wouldn't want that. It might be awkward. And I don't like that weird prickly feeling I get when I start talking to someone about something awkward. I'd probably go to the stake for Jesus, but I don't think I'd endure what I call weirdsies. That's bad news, guys. You see how persecution purifies the church? And how when we get too comfortable, we forget that we're ambassadors. I do as well. I'm certainly not pointing fingers. But the gospel is the hope for the world, the power of salvation for all who believe. But we don't want to rock the boat, and we think maybe it might make it weird, and maybe even end a friendship with someone because they would think I was being rude, or maybe it might even keep me from getting that promotion, and that's out of the question. And so we keep it secret, a mystery, mouth closed. Often when I read about the great martyrs of the faith, or even when I read about Peter denying Jesus, I think, would I have stood up in that moment? Would I have said, yeah, I'm with him? Or would I have, like Peter, said, oh, no, I never met the guy? And I go back and forth about whether I would have done a better job than Peter. But I'll tell you what, if I'm not willing to make the smallest laying down of my rights or a tiny bit of my life and make an awkward conversation happen where I might 
feel silly or say something that, that doesn't land, there's no chance on earth that I would lay down everything for Jesus. Jesus said those who are faithful with little things will be given more. Read about how the disciples wound up there before the Sanhedrin. Started out preaching in the temple courts, in the synagogues, which would have been a lot more intimidating because there was debate going on there. And then in the street corners, which is really intimidating. I've done that stuff. It's hard stuff. You stand up on a box and preach and there are people trying to shout you down. But they were doing it. And after they had been doing that, then they were dragged before the Sanhedrin and threatened and caned and said, well, we still have to obey God, not you jokers. It starts small if you are faithful with little things. And telling someone about Jesus can be a very little thing. That's why it's called the little mustard seed. You're planting these seeds and they grow into something great. But we've got to remember that as ambassadors, we don't go out and bow to the kings of other nations. That's not what an ambassador does. And as we're here in this world that is passing away, we don't bow to this world's culture or this world's God, which is Satan, the, the God of this world, the prince of the air, as he's called at the beginning of Ephesians. Rather, we stand tall with the authority of the king who sent us. We see that happen on Mars Hill. That was my text at Jim's funeral yesterday. Where, where Paul stood up before the greatest minds of that time, and he said, let me tell you about Jesus. And he framed it in a way that they would understand, but he did not change the message to suit that place so that he would be accepted as one of them. He had gone around their city, and he found that there was an altar to an unknown God, and he didn't say, guys, guess what? You've got an unknown God. I've got a mysterious unknown God. Let's just all hold hands and enjoy our uncertainty together. No, he said, I am going to reveal to you that God so you can know him. He's not far off. You can reach out and touch him and have a relationship with him and be saved because he died for your sins and rose again. And it was a gospel message he preached that got him laughed at. A lot of them laughed in his face, but a few believed. That's how it goes with the gospel. And Paul said, I'll pray for more boldness. You pray for more boldness for me. That in the opening of my mouth, and notice that he doesn't pray that God will open his mouth, but he prays when I open my mouth, God will give me the words and the boldness to speak. Or literally, he says, pray that word will be given to, to me in the opening of my mouth. A word. This is the language of diplomatic speech. A message. A logos. This is the very word in Greek that's used to talk about the word of truth by which we are born again. Give me, give me a word to speak. This is the message as ambassadors we are to proclaim, and we don't have the liberty to change it. An ambassador who would change up the message, not only would be fired, but perhaps would be punished. And in the, in the Roman world, severely. They didn't have the authority to say, well, I don't know, what the king told me to say is kind of harsh. Why don't I soften it a little bit? Gosh, even if you work for a, a company, you're not allowed to do that. You've got to take the message and you've got to uh, convey it faithfully. Well, but I don't know. I don't want it to be about a cross and blood and all this stuff. How about if instead it's about eh, finding your true happiness and living your best life and being full of joy and peace? There it is. What if instead of it being about saving us from God's wrath against sin and saving us from hell, it's about saving me from my humdrum routine. It's a cure for my blues and boredom. It's about giving me purpose when I feel restless. Read what we see in Scripture here in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, Rather, we have renounced 
secret and shameful ways, we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. To every man's conscience, we proclaim it plainly. We set it forth and just put it there and say, here it is. Do with it what you will. The shortest time I've ever had a job in my life, I think I may have told you about this years ago, was four days. I was a telemarketer before they were replaced with robots. By the way, of all the jobs that we saw robots replacing, that one would have been way on my list. I missed the quaint days when there was someone I could yell at, hang up on. I'm kidding. I'd been hung up on a lot. And I'll tell you what, there were people who were happy with that job, and they made scads of money at it. But I hated it, and I did not make much money at all. You made like almost nothing unless you started getting the commissions for making the sales, and then you could see yourself on that leaderboard. And I, I didn't do well, and I got in trouble a lot, because as a new guy, they're listening in on my calls all the time, and I kept getting called in multiple times a day to the boss's office. And she'd be like, Zach, get in here. And I'd go in. And I, I couldn't focus on what she was saying because she always had a cigarette with like a four-inch ash at the end. And I was just thinking like, why doesn't it break? But I heard enough to get the gist of it. I wasn't sticking to the script. I was trying to be clever. I was trying to do something freestyle salesmanship thing. She said, read the script. That's what works. All the people that you see on the leaderboard, they read the script. If this person on the phone says X, they look and they find in the script what to say and they read it back to them. That's the job I'd been hired to do. I couldn't do it, so I quit after four days. But that was what I'd been hired to do. Now, the gospel, we don't have a script, a specific thing that you say to, to bring the gospel. I've seen that kind of book. This is exactly what you say. That's kind of the opposite of what our evangelism training materials are, are about and what Jeff Johnson teaches. It's about how, how you can use your God-given gifts and personality and, and not change who you are and, and bring the gospel to people. But we do have a script in the sense that there is a message. We can frame it, but it's got to be the right message. It's got to be the gospel message. It's not about us. It's not my message. I think we often get tripped up when we do that. It's got to be about me. I've got to tell people the amazing stuff uh, my story of how I went from, let's see, I, I was on the streets and I was violence and gangs and, oh wait, no, I got saved when I was five. Is I got to make up some five-year-old gang that I was in or something? I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't need to be about me, okay? And, and if it, it, I mean, you can use your own testimony. Certainly, I'm not saying that's not a good idea, but it's got to segue into the gospel itself because your life, my life, they aren't the gospel. They aren't going to save anyone. The greatest possible testimonies in the world are those of the saints who wrote the Bible and, and the disciples who walked with Jesus. We almost never see them bring that stuff up. Paul just two times brings up the domestic road experience. And when it comes up, he tells a story and uses it as a way into the historical facts of Jesus' death and resurrection and how you can be saved by putting faith in him. Because we're not appealing to people's sinful or fleshly desires. Rather, we're appealing to the heart. Or as Paul said earlier, we are appealing to each person's conscience in the sight of God. So it's not us doing the work. It's the Holy Spirit using our words, which he gave us. Do you believe that? That's really the question here. Do we believe that that's true? Enough to put our money where our mouth is like the guy who reached into his wallet and pulled out 10 bucks and said, here, buy that book, it will do you good. Do I believe that an investment of my time and my energy and my life into someone else could bear eternal 
reward and bear fruit, proclaiming the gospel to someone more than once, perhaps over and over and over again. I love putting people on the spot because it's fun. Alex, how many times do you think your buddy told you about Jesus before you believed? 20, 30 times. I tried that once. It didn't work. This guy's going to be with Jesus forever because someone said, well, I tried it 29 times. I think I'm going to tell that guy about Jesus again because there is power. And if we believe that there is going to be a great return on this investment, that the resources given to me, even of my time and my thoughts and my energy and all of the rest are for the good of the gospel and the kingdom and the king who sent me, we will continue to do the work of an ambassador. And we've got to remember that the world and the devil, they are not cagey and, and sort of timid about how they tell their lies. They're very bold. Turn on the TV, open a browser, look at a billboard, and okay, yeah, they're right out there with it. Here's the thing. I'll even give you 10 bucks to get started on it. We have to be bolder than that. Bolder than the devil with the truth, with the gospel. One of the schemes of the devil we've been looking at are to lull us into a sense of well, maybe I'll preach the gospel sometime, but not now. That's in, in C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. That's one of the things the older demon says to the younger demon. It's okay if they think evangelism is good and noble and great and wish they were doing it, just so long as they don't actually do it. And guess what? We don't. A recent survey showed that only 22% of people who called themselves evangelical, which literally means gospel Christians, only 22% believed that we should try to, quote, convert people of other religions or no religion to Christianity. The other 78% thought, nah, it was probably kind of old-fashioned. Probably kind of intolerant. I wonder what they would think if they were walking down the street and saw a building that was on fire on the first floor and someone standing in a window on the second floor. Would they think, hey, guy, uh, no, nah, never mind. You didn't hear me. That'd be all, if I, if I threw some pebbles up there or something that seems old-fashioned, like in an old movie, I'm just going to forget about it. It seems intolerant to suggest he's not in the spot that he should be. We have to remember that we are given a, a sacred and solemn duty of being the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus, so open your mouth. Don't think, not yet. Yeah, sure, but not now. Because the message is, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe now. That was the message from the very first days of Jesus' ministry and even before when John the Baptist was preparing the way. And we cannot do that without opening our mouths. You've heard it said, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. If I had that $10 bill and nine of its friends, I'd bet all of them that St. Francis of Assisi didn't say that. But as it stands, it's a fine phrase. As long as you remember, it will eventually require words. It's like saying, make omelets always. When necessary, use eggs. Okay, there are times when you're making an omelet and you're not doing the eggs. You're chopping up some tomatoes, some shallots, maybe an avocado or two, the perfect food. But if you don't have the eggs, you don't have an omelet. And if you don't have words, you don't have any kind of evangelism, lifestyle or otherwise. So someone says, my life speaks for itself. People at work, they look at me, they know I go to church and they see how I live my life and do my business. So they know the gospel, do they? Are you that good of a mime? You're out there, you're, you're doing your work, and you're also like cross and uh, you know, the, the, the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, substitutionary atonement. If you're that good of a mime, stay away from me. Mimes give me the Wiggins. 
That's not how Paul approached these things, and it's not how any of the apostles did, nor how Jesus told us to. Romans 10, 14 to 15, a text we also heard. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And we could add, what good is being sent if you don't open your mouth? And then he says, how good are the feet of those who bring the good news? How beautiful are the feet. We are the feet of Christ bringing the good news to the world. We have the treasure in jars of clay. This was going to be my children's sermon today. It's a replica of one of the things that, uh, the jars that they found the, the Dead Sea Scrolls in. A treasure in jars of clay, but the treasure does no good if you keep the lid on tight. If it remains a mystery. The good news is only good news if it's news. And it's only news if it's proclaimed. Otherwise, it's a secret. It's a mystery that's sealed up. And you say, wait a minute. So you're saying my life doesn't matter? No, your life matters. As Paul told Titus, he explains how all, this is how you teach older women and younger women to behave, older men and younger men, and so they will live worthily and, and, and bring glory to God. And he says, with this, they will adorn the gospel and dress it up. Make it look nice so there's not an unnecessary stumbling block in the way when they proclaim it. They adorn it. That might not translate well in an age when people wear shorts to five-star restaurants and flip-flops to the White House when they meet the president. Maybe we should say these things garnish the gospel. Like when you order a real nice a meal, so nice you've got to put it on Instagram, there's a garnish on it, a sprig of parsley or something, or some real leafy spinach. You're not supposed to eat that, by the way, unless it's avocado, because it's a sin to waste it. But if it's just a bunch of parsley, that's not the meal. That's there to make the meal look nice. That's not the meal, and, and our lives are not the gospel. But how we live does reflect on how we will be able to evangelize. There may be someone you try to bring the gospel to, and you're worried that they're going to call you on your own sins. Well, admitting your own sins and failings and saying, well, Jesus has forgiven those and he's working on me as part of preaching the gospel. But we want to be good witnesses so that we won't hear, oh yeah, Jesus, why all the rage then? Why, why all the leering at women then? Why all the weird racist comments if this whole Jesus thing is what you're all about? We want to remember that we are ambassadors and every aspect of an ambassador's life is going to reflect on the king. When we were going through the catechism, which I hope to begin again in the fall because it was a lot of fun, those of you in that class knew of my penchant for very old folksy sermon illustrations. And uh, one that if you were in that class, you already heard maybe twice. My favorite ever from Roland Hill, an early 1800s Christian he spoke of a preaching barber. You heard that right, a preaching barber who had made a wig for one of his hearers, badly made and nearly double the usual price. And when anything particularly profitable escaped the lips of that preacher, the hearer would observe to himself, excellent, this should touch my heart, but oh, the wig. <laughs> but oh, the wig. Our lives don't preach the gospel, but our lives do speak to the truth of the gospel. So, yes, pray that God would reveal to you what's the wig in your life that would make somebody not hear the gospel from your mouth and, and pray that he will be crucifying that sin and putting it to death in you. At the same time praying that you would be opening your mouth 
and receiving boldness. But recognize this. You might say, all right, I'm going to wait until I'm really obedient to begin preaching the gospel. But until you are obeying the Great Commission, you're not being really obedient. It's sort of a catch-22. As we pray that God will put to death our besetting sins, we have to be bringing the gospel to the nations. It's the last bit of instructions he gave us before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So I ask you, pray for me, your pastor, that in the opening of my mouth, boldness would be given to me. Words to say that would bring the truth of Jesus Christ to anyone that I encounter. Anyone who finds themselves in my path for a moment. And I'll pray for you and ask your friends and ask each other to pray for each other for boldness, for specific individuals that you would like to bring the gospel to. Pray that I'll have boldness tomorrow at maybe 11 o'clock. That's when we find ourselves in the break room or walking around Hawk Island or whatever. Recognize, though, that in doing this, you will find yourself less and less caring about the attaboys and praise of people and more and more caring about being a faithful ambassador. So let us pray for one another that we will all open our mouths and proclaim to the world the mystery of the gospel for which we are ambassadors in a chain. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this little prayer request that we could quickly read over. And Lord, we thank you that rather than discouraging us, it encourages us to remember that even the great heroes of the faith, the apostle to the Gentiles and the Jews alike, all things to all people, St. Paul prayed that he would have boldness, that he would have the words to speak. Lord, we are, we with him pray that you would give us those words to speak. We, we want to want to preach the gospel more than we do. And we want to boldly proclaim it. We don't want our own words and cleverness to be in the spotlight. We want the words that your Spirit gives us. The words of eternal life. The word of truth by which we are born again. Lord, we pray that this would be what drives us here at Judson Baptist Church more and more. I pray that we would gather together, all of us, to hear uh, some teaching on how we can most effectively and biblically do this from uh, Dr. Jeff Johnson. We pray for him now that you would keep him healthy and get him and his wife safely here next month. We are excited, Lord, at the prospect of renewing our mission here at Judson Baptist Church. I confess that earlier, even in a prayer, I sort of looked backward and said, Lord, help us go back. No, I pray, Lord, that you bring us forward. We pray that you bring us outward and onward with the gospel as ambassadors of your kingdom. In your holy name we pray. Amen.